the flush. So fast, it hardly seems real. So vivid, the moment freezes in time before erupting in a blur of spurs and feathers. It's why we changed the way upland loads are built with Prairie Storm. Exclusive flight control flex wad technology and a mix of copper plated lead and flight stopper pellets combine to create dense, deadly shot strings through any choke. Longer shots, more power, fewer missed birds. Only from Federal. This episode of the Flush Podcast is brought to you by Waltons, Aluma Trailers, North Dakota Tourism, Federal Ammunition, Onyx Hunt, and by Nutrisource Pet Foods. Today, I'm joined by Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever big knocker, Matt Kaharski. Matt's laughing right now. Matt serves as a chairman on the National Board of Directors for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. We'll dig into his role in the big picture of our favorite conservation organizations. Plus, we'll discuss the outlook for America's wildlife habitat, wild birds, and we'll probably find some time to talk about our dogs. Welcome to another episode of the Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host. To my right is Brandon Morton. He's working the soundboard. Straight across from me is Matt Kaharski. Matt, not only have you taken the time out of your busy schedule to join us, and I know you have a busy schedule, but you came all the way into our studio to do so. So I appreciate your commitment and making the time today. Oh, just happy, happy to be here. And, you know, you guys have been such a great partner to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. We really do appreciate it. You, it's not just about... Uh, um, you know, entertainment. It's also about educating people on the outdoors and you guys play a big, big role in that. So we really appreciate that. Well, we live it and we try to, we try to, I think Brandon and I, you know, we tell stories, we make fun of each other mostly. Um, but then we have real conversations that hopefully get people thinking and we want to entertain and educate and inspire. And, uh, we've been doing this now for a little over two years, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, almost two and a half years, Jeez. something like that. Yeah, he's got, got a great following for for good reason. Well, thank you, I appreciate it. And again, thanks for coming in today. Uh, I called you the big knocker. You, it, you, it's funny because we live in Minnesota here, and you said I know the big knocker, yeah, and I'm not the big knocker. I know the big knocker. I'm not the big knocker. Yeah. Well, uh, so the big knocker on uh, the most popular sports talk radio station in Minnesota, K Fan would be Bill Maurice, yeah. the doctor down at Mayo. Fantastic uh, guy. And, he's, and you he's, know him. he's the real deal. He's a great guy. You, you coached him. Uh, I, I spent some time with him. Uh, uh, well, yeah, I spent some time with him because he's a, he's a good communicator and ambassador for Mayo Clinic. And uh, uh, he's just, a like I said, just a genuine, real, smart guy. And, and he, he provides a great service to the show, just educating people on what's going on in healthcare. He's a, yep. he's, he's a great guy. So we're going to dig into your role in the outdoor world, but you have, you, you have two worlds. Yeah, I do. You know? I so do. When, you, when you talk about <laughs> just two <laughs> communicate, yeah, there's a lot, you're, you're all over the place, but what is your non outdoors role? Yeah. I lead an organization called Padilla, which is a company that helps other organizations communicate effectively. You know, if you think about anybody who wants to get something accomplished, they have to get people to understand you appreciate what you're trying to do, and then act on your behalf. And that's what we do. We help organizations communicate more effectively because they're trying to get their goals accomplished. Okay. What is your title at Pheasants Forever? Yeah, I'm chairman or chair of the board of directors. Um, I suppose I should say chairperson. Let's just call it chair. The chair. Chair yep. of the board of directors of Pheasants Forever and, and, and Quail Forever. And you know, for those of you on the, uh, who are listening to this going, what's this Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever? Think about it as Pheasants Forever, Inc. is sort of the, the umbrella organization. And there's two 
um, um, entities, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, these membership organizations that are all about land stewardship in support of upland birds, um, supporting pheasants and the environment around pheasants and quail and the environment around quail. Um, and that's, I'm chair of the board of, board of directors. So that was one of my questions. Just to confirm for people, there is one board and it runs both yeah. quail and pheasants. Yeah, there's I, one organization. The Habitat. Yeah, the Habitat organization that has two different membership groups within it. And there's some crossover. Think about it almost like, like well, think of it like Campbell's Soup. There's the corporation Campbell's Soup that has Campbell's Soup, the red and white can, but also Bolthouse Farms and other product lines as well. So there's Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, and they have complementary goals. And we started Quail Forever, gosh, more than 10 years ago. Um, has it been that Yeah, long it's been that long wow. because wildlife, um, uh, our wildlife advocates, you know, departments of national resources, federal wildlife officials were saying, man, what you guys had done for pheasants, uh, we really, we really need some help for quail. Would you guys be willing to create an organization and, and, and extend your reach and help quail out? And that was, um, that was more than 10 years ago. We've learned a lot. There's a certain amount of things that are the same and there's some things that are wildly different about quail country. And, and it's been a real education, but the quail forever has been a, a, a fantastic, fantastic, new organization. We actually, and just, it's growing, a it's lot. growing, a, it's growing a lot. In fact, we um, we just hired um, the the first leader within the organization that's dedicated to managing the Quail Forever organization to help continue to grow that because there's a you know the habitat projects there's the education and there's also the membership and outreach so that's a good signal for how that that effort has uh, with quail has grown and for those of us up here in Minnesota some some may have never even seen a Bob White or a Merns or a Gambles. Um, I can tell you that it's a uh, it's an amazing experience to watch a covey get up, man. It it's, really is. It's like it's like shooting popcorn. We could probably tell stories yeah. for days about some of the adventures. It's funny you uh, were in Arizona at the same time I was in Arizona right. this last January, right. and uh, the places bird birds have taken us yeah. and our dogs. Well, and you're not far from quail country here. You really aren't. You really aren't. Iowa, Nebraska, you know, Kansas, Missouri, no. and then you can go pretty far afield too. Mm -hmm. I've, I'm. Got into quail three and a half hours from my place, and that's an hour west of the Twin Cities in central Minnesota. Yeah, it's a, so it's, you don't it's, have to go too far to get there. Absolutely. Um, before Quail Forever was Quail Forever, do you remember what was the title of the organization that it was? It was kind of similar. There to, was there was an organization called Quail Unlimited. Quail Unlimited, down, yes, down exactly. in Georgia, and that organization, through for a variety of reasons, um, uh, it wasn't able to continue. Um, was there anything that you looked at when that didn't make it that you said we have to be careful here? Um, well, uh, yes and no. I mean, certainly we wanted to make sure that we weren't creating an organization that was a direct competitor. Um, that was not the intent at all. The the, our, our purpose was to create an organization that was extending the Pheasants Forever model, that chapter-based model, into quail um, country. That or we, ne we need lots of wildlife organizations, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that, that idea of... Uh, so the going into it thinking that we were competing with another organization, no, that was not the case at all. Um, so, you know... Uh, Quail Unlimited was um, was very heavily focused down in the southeast, which is a huge, huge environment for quail, mm -hmm. and that's super important. and And um, that is one of the four regions that we have to think about when we're thinking about quail. But there are other regions that are quite different. You, kind of that Midwest sort of crossover country, you know. Like I said, the Kansas, Missouri 
you know, Iowa, there it's sort of the habitat and, and the behavior is sort of similar to pheasant hunting. Quite different down in the southeast. I mean, it's the 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 plantations and the history and the the culture, the quail culture is just fundamentally different. It's very cool, but it's very different. Very different. And then you go down into the Southwest, Arizona, Nevada, California, California Idaho, and that's right. more or Northwest right. even. Right. That was one of the big learnings was recognizing that you know, you know pheasant hunters are kind of pheasant hunters are kind of pheasant hunters. Yep. But in quail, there's a lot of different subgroups and subcultures, and, and the habitat management practices are quite different as well. Um, so we're, we're getting way into what I wanted to dig into later on in this show. I kind of had just some, like an outline in my mind of how I wanted to get where we're going already. But that, we're already talking about it. So do you feel like, as, you know, chair of the board, Quail country in, you know, just the upland habitat. I mean, it's so different all around the country. Did you, is there a learning curve or do you have to rely on people in their regions to really step up and provide what you need? Because you can't know everything about quail down in, in right. Arizona and Georgia and grouse in Maine. And, you know, when you're talking all these different habitats, it's, yeah. it's diverse and it's, it's different everywhere. Yeah, you know, I'd say if, if you know, in hindsight, I, first of all, always had mentors helping me out. You know, I think the first time I ever went quail hunting was with actually Rick Young, who is, uh, you know, used to be Pheasants Forever's head of habitat. And now we do an annual trip quail hunting. But he said, I need to school you on quail. You got to learn stuff. He got, and he yeah, took me to. down to Kansas and we quail hunted. And what was interesting, well, and we were quail and pheasant hunting. And, and after maybe three hours of hunting with Rick in that area, I was like, okay, I got this because the, the, the habitat is somewhat similar and the behaviors are somewhat similar. I mean, um, you can kind of tell when you're in a quail area and when you're in pheasant area, but when a flush gets up, it could be one, it could be one or, or the other. So if I were heading out to hunt Bob White's in kind of the central part of the country, I'd, I'd feel very comfortable going out and, you know, using my, on your on, own. yeah, using my onyx, finding the public land, looking for good habitat, being fine. Down southeast, down in Arizona, <laughs> no chance. I'm going with a buddy who knows what they're doing yeah. for sure. Uh, well, let's let's take just a quick step back because um, <clears throat> I think it's interesting the journey that you've taken to get where you are. Um, so uh, I want to say maybe like two or three years ago we were out fishing and you told me <laughs> you told me the the story about how you ended up in this position. Oh yeah, is that the real story you can tell today, or how did you get? to yeah. this role that you now serve in? Well, the way I got involved in Pheasants Forever was I was trying to sell a truck. <laughs> That's okay. okay, good. That's yeah. the story I wanted so to hear. So I, I had this old Ford Explorer that I wanted to sell and get a new one, and I put it, this is back, I actually put it in the newspaper. That's how long ago this was. You know, you didn't put it online. You put it in the newspaper, and I get one phone call, <laughs> one phone call from this guy who says, hey, tell me about this truck you're selling. I said, well, it's my hunting vehicle, and I'm looking to get it different. He goes, oh, what do you hunt? I said, well, I hunt deer and I hunt some ducks. And he goes, well, you ever hunt pheasants? I'm thinking, who the hell is this guy, right? <laughs> well, it turns out it's Joe Dugan, who is, if you, if you don't know who Joe Dugan is, he's a legend in outdoor circles, just an ambassador for Pheasants Forever. Uh, he, was the, he was the head of um, marketing and business development for the organization. And we're talking for 15, 20 minutes. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And he, go, he said, well, what do you do for a job? And I said, well, I'm a communications consultant. Consultant, he goes, well, you know, would you have coffee with me and Bob St. Pierre, my new marketing guy and my new PR guy? I'm like, 
all right. Do you want to buy my car or not? Well, yeah. So I end up having <laughs> I end up having coffee with Bob and Joe. Um, they get me hooked into helping out and being an advisor to Pheasants Forever. And you know what? He never did buy that freaking truck. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I got involved. And that was 15 years ago. But I think that, you know, I think it's, you know, it, it's kind of, um, I think back to then and, and where I am now. At that point, I said, look, guys, you know, I'm in my mid-30s. I can give you my advice and my time, but I don't really have money to, to give you. Um, and, and for God's sake, don't ask me to ask people for money. Well, then fast forward a few years, I start giving more money. <laughs> fast forward a few more years, uh, you know what? At this last Pheasant Fest, I stood up in front of 500 people at this banquet, and I asked them for money. I thought, holy crap, how did I get to this point? Yeah. And I think everybody goes through some sort of a journey in the outdoors. And, and that journey could be a volunteerism journey, but it's also a journey in terms of how who we are as outdoors people. I mean, you think about all of us in our, when we were in our 20s, it was all about let's fill the bag, let's fill the bag, let's get some action. Then it got into the, you know, maybe 40s where it's all about, I just got to get out, get away a little bit. And uh, Bob and I were just talking about this the other day. I think I'm in a new point where it's like, I just want to make sure that other people who are out are having a good time. And I'm finding myself cracking the gun and carrying it over my shoulder, watching the dogs work and getting really pumped when someone else gets the bird. And that's not what I would have been in my 20s. Well, it's an interesting journey. I mean, everyone goes through different seasons. And I think whether you hunt or fish that that those seasons change throughout a lifetime for most people. Uh, this last year, um, was, there's four women who would love to go out on the opening day of pheasants, uh, pheasant uh, season together. And I said, hey, I got this new piece of land that, that I just got. Why don't you guys go hunt it? And they're like, are you going to hunt with us? I say, I don't know. They like, no, no, you got to go with us. I'm like, I kind of want to watch you guys get a bird, sure. you know? Yeah. And that to me was way more important and, and exciting and, and I remember the fist pump that I gave when this one guy and his girlfriend, they got, she got her first rooster behind my lab and I was like whooping and holler and she thought I was nuts, but just watching her put it all together, that to me was, that was so cool. Yeah. Well, that's, it's, it's fun to hear these kind of stories. And I, you know, like my personal journey is interesting in that I started uh, guiding people in high school fishing as a fishing guide. And, you know, just the, the fist pumps and the high fives and the mentoring, the teaching. And, you know, my role now with my kids and other kids and friends, and I've seen people go on their first hunts and just adults, the adrenaline rush of having a, a wild turkey come in or the flush or deer come in. I mean, just they're shaking, you know, and watching them, watching them watch that dog come back with that bird. Yeah. And they're just in awe. All yeah. the different parts of it. It's so rewarding. Yeah. It's so rewarding. And yeah. I think it takes a lot more work on our end than me going and putting myself in that position and being ready and taking the bird, you know, like yeah. I can do that. Yeah. And sure. I get some, I miss some, you know, yeah. you do too. We yeah. all do. But when you get somebody else in that position and the cool part is we don't know what that's going to turn into in 5, 10, 15 years down the road. They may get their own dog. They may bring their own kids out. They may bring other kids out. And Well, and we got to remember also that this is, you know, getting other people involved in the outdoors has a direct benefit to us. 
I mean, the more people we get in the outdoors, it's counterintuitive because you know, yeah. more people in the outdoors, I'm going to let places, let places, less places to hunt. But you know, the the the, the license revenue, Pittman Robertson um, uh, funds, all the more people who are in the outdoors, the more funds there are to create more outdoors. Mm-hmm. So it is a it is the gift that keeps on giving. It's counterintuitive to someone who says, "I don't want three people on my honey hole." So that's interesting. That's the debate, though. It is. It people, absolutely it, is. People talk out of both sides of their mouth all the time mm-hmm. in this in this space when they say, I'm, I'm all for getting more people out there. But then all of a sudden, somebody's hunting on your spot that you've been hunting for a while, and now do you really feel the same way? Yeah. Well, you know, that's it, a conversation I've had with a lot of hunters over the last few years. Do you really feel... Because you can't tell me you're all for having somebody else right. in, and more people out there and sharing it unless it affects you. Yeah, yeah. Well, so... Uh, I, I, yeah. And I, and I think that's fair because, you know, look, we want our spots, particularly if you're in that stage where it's like, I'm out here to enjoy myself. And last thing you want to do is park and then have someone park 50 yards down the road from you and that kind of thing. You know, um, a couple things, first of all, I think some of the best hunting spots I've found have been when I got to my spot a little late and there was someone there and I actually had to go and find forces something you else. to do something else. You force myself yeah. out, uh, force me out of my comfort zone and I find another spot. Then I've got two or three alternatives. If you have your one spot and you're just going to that one spot every time, well, at some point you're not hunting anymore. You know, there's a, there's a certain amount of adventure that needs to happen here. It's just like grouse hunting. If you're grouse hunting and you go to that same spot every year for 10 years, you're six, seven, eight, nine. They're not going to be as good. You got to find some other places. Yeah. Things change. Yeah. So you're not adapting. So I get it. And you know, there's that, there's, you know, you know, there's a, there is, there are some folks out there who have an etiquette issue and, and, you know, I'm one who always goes up and strikes out, strikes the conversation with the, the person who I think maybe is just a little on the edge. Yeah. And we just, what do you say to that person? Well, well this happened last year. Um, uh, I, it was, we, I was lining up a young couple who was hunting on one end. We were on a big, long stretch of, of, uh, public, public land. And we got there an hour early. I was lining up um, I, I had three kind of three different little micro groups. I had a, a couple, a husband and wife. Then I had a new minority hunter who I was bringing out and then me. And we were going to split up three different pods and we were going to kind of work this big area. Well, about 15 minutes before season opened, I was kind of moving trucks around and a truck comes in and pulls in right between two of our, two of the three groups. And I thought my first reaction was that everybody's reaction is those a-holes, what the hell? I took a breath, went over to him, and I said, "Hey, you know, I know that I know that this looked like it was an open spot, but we were just moving trucks around, and you know, here's where we were hunting. You know, where, where were you thinking of going?" And I started asking questions and showing a little curiosity, and they're like, "Well, yeah, we had been here before, but we haven't been here in a while, and such and such." And I said, "You know, I don't suppose there's a chance that I could ask you guys to work over here. Here's a good spot too." And we had a little conversation about it. They, and then I said, you know, we're going to be here for an hour. And then when, when, if you guys might be, might be willing to work that, um, and then maybe when we're done, I'll kind of point out and see if we see what we have. And an hour later we came back and they worked their way over and I showed them where I knew there were birds and then left. And so essentially they hunted their spot. I did them a solid, showed them some birds that we didn't get to we moved on to something else. And I know that next time they're going to think a little bit harder about that. Yeah. 
So that's a long story, but, but I mean, no, it's a good one though. We can't assume that ill intent out there. There's just some people who just simply don't know. Yep. And frankly, look, I'm, this is going to sound really arrogant. I'll also take a look at whether or not they look like they know what they're doing. And if they don't, I'll go hunt right behind them after when they're done and we'll pick up birds. Sure. I've done that as well. One thing that I've, I've noticed is usually a loud person in the group. You know, if there's four Mm -hmm. people, there's going to be somebody who might bring the attitude. But I, in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to be, I'm going to rise above. I will not do what I had planned in that situation. I've had that happen before too, because it might be that loud guy that's being rude to me, son or daughter that's standing there listening. So if I can, if I can give a good, Hey, you know what guys? Yes, you go ahead, and I did see birds. I don't need to tell you that, but I'm going to because I want your daughter to see that somebody else cares enough to give good advice, even though your dad might not be doing it, you know? And so there's more people than just the jerk that you might run into. Well, you know, let's take that a little further because there's a bit of an issue of, of inclusion and diversity in this discussion, too. So here I had these, in this group, there were four of us, I had a young husband and wife who were out with their first dog. She was basically in one of her first hunting experiences. The husband was an experienced hunter, but she was pretty new to this whole gig. And then on the other side of me, I had this guy about my age, black hunter, getting back into the sport he hunted when he was younger. Okay. Me going up and confronting those two guys who pulled up in that pickup truck is a completely different scenario than either of those two doing the same thing. They're just not going to have the same experience. Sure. And I remember the guy who was, who was with me, the, the, the um, black hunter, he's like, I don't know that I walked up to them. I was like, yeah, I, I, I get I it. I get that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the husband and wife and the dog, you don't really have that same kind of thing. I think our job... You know, know your role. Yeah, you know, and, 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 and our job is, is to advocate for the people who we're with. And, and, you know, look, if it was just me, I'd probably picked up and gone somewhere else. But these two... These two groups, they had their spots. They'd done everything right. I didn't go in and like defend them, but but part of being part of being a mentor is also essentially being an advocate. Show them how it's done. Yeah, show, show them the right way right. to do it. Exactly. Absolutely. And also, I mean, I think we talk about the jerks. There's not as many of the. There's more great people. There's more yeah. Matt Kaharskis out there than there are mm-hmm. jerks out there. And and I've taken kids hunting the last few years because I have them. My nephew, my niece, uh, right. other you know friends, my kids. And when we go talk to landowners and we pull up and I, I explain, hey, I'm taking these kids out on a hunt and we're just looking for a place to go. Yep. And they're like, those guys are hunting? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You want to go sit in that yep. deer stand, in that turkey blind? Yeah. You want to yeah. go walk? Absolutely. Let me show you. And then all of a sudden they just want to provide those great experiences. So knocking on doors um, and explaining yeah. what you're doing can really uh, open up a lot of opportunities for people. I uh, didn't necessarily want to jump in there, yeah. you know, but we're yeah, talking we've, about we've our bad experiences, yeah. but, but the good ones far outweigh. Yes. Far outweigh. Yeah. So when we're talking about our roles, let's talk about the role, your role specifically, what is the role of the chair? And then what is the role of the board of directors? Yeah. So let's take that in reverse okay. um, because it's easier to explain the board and then the chair. Okay. So, so most companies and not for profits um, have both a management team and a board, okay? The management team is responsible for managing the day-to-day operations of the organization, building the plan and executing on the plan, making sure that it's achieving its goals. 
the board is responsible for providing oversight and guidance to that management team. And that comes in two forms. One is looking out for the risks that that organization could face, and the other is looking out for the different opportunities that that organization might see, uh, uh, might, might want to seize. That's the board's job. The board isn't supposed to get involved into the day-to-day -day weeds of the organization. They're supposed to kind of look up and ahead at what's going on out there and provide the big guidance. picture. Yeah, big picture and provide guidance and advice to the management team on the risks and the, and the opportunities that might be out there. I'm chair of that board. And so my job is to make sure that all of the great diverse perspectives of that 15-person board are heard, that their expertise is called out and brought to the table, and that they're feeling like their, their own unique perspectives are, are, are shared with management team. And, and that, uh, that can manifest itself in a variety of different ways. We have regular every other month meetings. We have different mechanisms to for the board to interact with the management team, but always with an understanding of where our place is. It's not to get in the weeds of the organization. It's to think a little bit bigger picture. I'll give you a, a good example of this. You know, many, many years ago, um, uh, Pheasants Forever's habitat mission was very, very heavily centered around CRP and the farm bill, get as much CRP out there as possible. And, and that, that worked really well, but we've had some interesting political challenges here with regard to CRP, where even when we do get acres released, sometimes it's really not easy to get at those acres and administer those acres. Well, board's job is to say, okay, if CRP is a hindrance to us being able to achieve our mission, what are the other things out there beyond CRP that we could potentially be doing to make sure we can put habitat on the ground outside of CRP? Management team who's got the great expertise then goes and figures that out, and they have. And, 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 and you know, our habitat mission is not 100% beholden to CRP anymore. CRP is still incredibly important, right. but there are tons of other programs out there that, that we can use to get habitat on the ground. Can you explain to somebody that uh, is listening, let's say federal um, uh, acres adjust in the CRP. Let's say you, we've got 2 million more acres of CRP that we can put into the ground, mm -hmm. and yet we only achieve... 1.2 million acres. Why do we not hit 2 million acres? Yeah, I'm, and you're taking me right to the edge of my knowledge here. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, but what I can tell you at the high level is releasing and making acres available is one thing. Facilitating the, the actual mechanisms to get those acres implemented by the landowners is a whole nother kettle of fish. It requires a lot of coordination with state and county. Um, and that's actually one of the roles that our farm bill biologists play at Pheasants Forever is they sit there in the local community and advise the landowner on here are the programs, here's how to administer them, here's how to make them work, partner with the counties, with soil and water conservation districts, with other entities to help make that happen. So there's the write down on paper, we're going to release the acres, and then there's the actual Get it get, done. Get it done. And yeah. you know what? If it's not done at the right time, that could be a big problem. Because if you're a farmer and those acres are released and available at a time after you've already planned next year's growing season, mm -hmm. too bad, so sad. It's yeah. kind of over. Well, sure. You're a landowner and you could choose to sign a three-year contract with a local farmer and he could put soybeans, corn, soybeans in there over those three years. And then you've already got the contract. Here comes this new CRP contract availability and you are already locked in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know what? That farmer's got to make a living. 
And, and that farmer actually, in many cases, really, really wants to put that habitat in the ground, but they're certainly not going to do nothing. Financially, they have yeah. to be able to make it yeah. work. So one of the areas, you know, Pheasants Forever and, and, and Quail Forever, you know, there's, there's the habitat portion of, of the organization that's actually helping facilitate landowners get habitat on the ground, helping state agencies get that habitat on the ground. There's the education side of it, you know, getting youth and others and expanding the, the, the people who are in the outdoors. But then there's the advocacy side, and that's the side working with government officials to say, hey, you know what, let's get some of these, um, these important uh, uh, legislative uh, initiatives enacted. Grasslands Act and other ones like that to really help make sure that the voice of the outdoors person is is heard in Washington and at the state level. Well, when uh, you know, you're basically we're looking at the big picture of the organization here, you know. But a lot of hunters they pay their thirty five dollars to become a member of Pheasants Forever, and they may only see the volunteer at a local chapter. They don't realize all these different mm-hmm. um, uh, arms yeah. that are, are reaching. So. Explain kind of, if you can, like an overview of Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever. Yeah. Uh, from the top all the way down, how it works. Yeah. So the organization, so Pheasants Forever and its two membership entities, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, is all about uh, creating an environment for more habitat for, for pheasants, quail, and, and, uh, and upland game and other species that benefit from that. That's at the top Everything level. benefits from it. Everything, everything in those particular geographies benefits from it, right? Whether it's deer, whether it's, you know, uh, songbirds, you know, pollinators, absolutely. Plus clean water. I'm going to take it and say things like moose. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, up in North Dakota right now, the grass uh, on the ground up in North Dakota is one of the fastest growing moose populations in our country. A lot of people don't realize it. You would never think that weird, grass. Weird, weird sidelight, but central North Dakota, I had a moose in my duck decoys last, I, last year. Yes. Okay. But anyway, so, yes. so that's at the big level. Now, one of the things that's very unique about, about this organization is that it's very, very chapter-centric. There are local chapters all across the country, in both pheasant country and quail country, made up of members. These members pay their $35 fee. That's the only, uh, that's the only money that goes straight to national organization. The rest of the money that's raised locally, that chapter determines how that money is used. It could be used on local habitat projects. It could be used as part of a legislative action fund. It could be teamed up with other chapters to do other initiatives. But that chapter-based model, that grassroots, no pun intended, chapter-based model is really unique for the organization. And it's, it's central because it's not just about the 35 bucks or the $50 of a rooster booster, or the 20000 if you're a gold patron member. It's about your voice. Um, the, the voice of saying 135, 140,000 people, uh, and extended beyond that, probably close to 400,000 advocates having their voice heard at the state level, at the federal level, um, to, to, to say, hey, we care about what's going on out here on the landscape. Yeah, I think that, is that more valuable than the $35? If we had to quantify that? If you're asking me, <laughs> we don't need your 35 bucks, hey, you know, that, that membership fee hasn't changed in like 15 years. Right. Yeah. I feel like it's due. Is it gonna? Uh, <laughs> I'm you on not the spot going. Here. Okay. Uh, no, but, uh, but we'll answer the question about is the voice um, as important as the dollar? The voice is, is easily as important as the dollar. Um, you know, you're not joining for a hat. You're not joining for a sticker. You're joining to be, to have your voice be part of the voice of the people 
who are out there in the outdoors and see what's going on in the landscape and see the contributions that it makes. And, and that voice needs to be heard. Would you, do you know, maybe this is too far down in the weeds, but the amount of upland bird hunters in America versus the amount of members of pheasants. Fraction. Bird. I was going to say. It's just a, a fraction. It's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, is it 1%, 2%? Oh, I think it's a little bigger. I think it's more than that. And it does vary state by state, but it's definitely single digits, yeah. which is crazy because, right. you know, you pay, you know, your, you know, your 30 bucks for your box of shells, you pay for your license, you pay for your gas, you pay for your, you know, hotel or your food. You know what? Pay an extra 35 bucks, join the organization you know, not only do you get access to great information through the magazine and you connect with the chapter, but, but what you do, that adder is so small compared to it. And you know, it's funny when I do talk to people out in the field and they say, I'm part of Pheasants Fair. I think, oh yeah, I should, I should join. Now he's like, all right, here, here's a hat. Here's your, here's your membership, <laughs> you know, go. And they, they almost always do sign up. It's not a case where there's a resistance. Why don't people do it, though, when they say, I should do it, I've been wanting to do it, but why don't they? Yeah, they need the triggers. They need the impetus. You know, uh, you know, and this is something that's been a little bit challenging during COVID, and i got to give a ton of credit to the Pheasants Forever staff for managing through COVID. This organization persevered and thrived through COVID better than I believe any other outdoor organizations because they, they found alternatives. But what you had is you had... Membership was almost always driven by the local chapter banquet. That's when your renewal happened. You missed your banquet, you know, okay, we might try and catch you afterward, but if you miss the banquet, you might miss your membership renewal. There's some new ways, new mechanisms that are being put in place to help facilitate that renewal and make sure that people can renew even if they can't get to a chapter banquet. And chapter banquets are still very important and they're fun and they're seeing other new new alternatives or new sort of approaches to banquets, pint nights and other things like that, clays for conservation events, those kinds of things. But, but that $35, thinking about those mechanisms, maybe it's an auto renewal, maybe it's some other way for people to get that. that that's, what, that's what we need to be doing and that's what we are doing. I talked to, we had Howard on the show last year, maybe a year and a half ago. Howard. Yeah, I know, we're going to dig into him too in a second. Did you, did you keep it to an hour? No, well, can't, I never can. And so... <laughs> You know, the we talked about how he he was really proud of how they were set up to weather the, the COVID storm. I did you see? I know we saw a little bit of a oh uh, membership certainly membership dropped. drop. Membership but are we back? Are you back? Um, no, I don't think we're back yet. Okay. I don't think we're back yet. But um, but there are definitely efforts to to bring that back. Um, membership went down, but the overall financial health of the organization stayed quite strong and mission was absolutely still front and center. I How mean, is that possible when you're losing hundreds some of great, thousands or millions well, of dollars? Well, we have a, a, a couple a couple things. Well, you know, you're losing the membership, the dollars associated with the lost membership, but there's a ton of other revenue that comes into the organization outside of those memberships. Could be grants, federal grants, could be state grants. Um, we have fantastic sponsors, corporate sponsors. Several, several of the folks that you that you work with, um, you know, who recognize the importance of of a vibrant outdoors. So, um, uh, with strategic partnerships now with um, ag companies, something you wouldn't have seen several years ago, but recognition of precision ag and regenerative ag and the value that that has on the landscape and the good business it is for farmers. All those things contribute to the financial health of the organization beyond just the pure membership dollars. 
Hunting season is just around the corner, and that means it's time to start planning. If you're looking for a great bird hunting destination this fall, then I strongly recommend that you consider one of my favorite places to hunt. That's North Dakota. North Dakota is a bird hunter's paradise. You can hunt both waterfowl and upland birds all in the same day. And North Dakota has approximately 700,000 acres of private land open to public walk-in hunting. This year, North Dakota has a population estimate of 3.4 million breeding ducks, which is 38% above the long-term average, and their prey pothole region is smack dab in the middle of the central flyway. Their spring water index also came way up, over 600% from last year's drought. Habitat on the landscape looks great, and I'm hearing reports of a strong hatch from their upland birds. With a little scouting, you just might find yourself in a field surrounded by wild flushing pheasants, sharp-tailed grouse, and Hungarian partridge. Start planning your fall hunt in North Dakota at legendarynd.com. Waltons.com has everything, and I mean everything, for your everyday cooking and wild game processing needs. Plus, they have experts on staff to help you learn how to use those products to get the best results. John Tremblay hosts their Meet Gistics podcast, live streams and live chats, which are interactive learning tools for the meat processing community. If you have questions, John and his team have the answers, from sausage making to smoking, recipes to seasonings, and so much more. Walton's products ship the same day you order. They have over 5,000 items in stock from grinders, mixers, stuffers, slicers, smokers, vacuum sealers, woo, and a whole lot more. Order the same seasonings and supplies that professionals use from the best name in the wild game processing industry. Then sign up for their monthly giveaways. Walton's, they have everything but the meat. Let's, uh, we mentioned Howard (laughs) a few months ago, a couple months ago. It was breaking news, I guess you would say, for a Habitat organization for many years, a couple decades. Uh, President CEO Howard Vincent sat there, and and uh, now he has announced his retirement. Um, what's your What's your initial thought when I know you knew this was coming? <laughs> I did. I did. But yeah. what's your take on Howard retiring? Well, uh, you know, first of all, I mean, we got to talk about something that should be celebrated. Here's a guy who, he's an accountant, okay, an accountant who joined this organization and became one of the most ardent supporters of out, of the outdoors in the country. I mean, he's not just important within Pheasants Forever. He's a, he is he is a, a fixture and a force in the outdoor community. Um, and that is that is just something to be celebrated because he's he's a fantastic dude and he's everything he is in those settings he is one on one as well. Um, so to to start there, the second but but the second part about it is um, we're not going to replace Howard, um, and and that's not the attempt. What we're going to do is hire the next leader for the organization. Those are two fundamentally different things. Howard has done over the past couple of years has set up a tremendous management team at the organization who are the people who are ready to step up, who are stepping up to the point where the burden isn't all on the CEO anymore. The burden is on the leadership team. So we are in, on you. Uh, well, my burden is, to, uh, my burden is, uh, with, with the board to find, to find the next leader. Yeah. Um, that's the only burden I have, but the, but the management team of the organization, Howard's direct reports, he's got a great team. And they have stepped up, and they are doing a fantastic job. This, the new leader of this organization is going to have a great team. And what we are right now, we're in an active process with an outside search consultant recruiting the next leader for the organization. That We have a set process that we're following. Uh, we're on track time-wise. Our hope is to have that person in place by the end of the year and then have a short transition period and go into 2023 with that new leader. 
Howard's going to step down midway through 2023. Yeah, that's yeah. his official. Yeah, yeah first half. So, yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna be ringing you know ring ringing him you know celebrating his swan his you know his swan song will be at Pheasant Fest 2023. The new leader, ideally, if the if the tr- timing works out, and when we're on track, will be you know will be introduced at that time. There will be a short transition, and then you know by mid next year we'll have that we'll have it done. Well, it's interesting. So Howard was in here a couple weeks ago. We were working on something completely separate from the flush. And he and I were talking about his transition. And we talked about a couple of names internally that we both like inside Pheasants Forever. And then the topic of, well, you know, you've traveled so much, Howard. And you did this and you did that. And he goes, I know, but I don't want people to get stuck on thinking that they have to do things the way that I did it. You know, this new person could come in and have a completely different mindset. It could be a couple people. It doesn't have to be one person. So do you agree with that? Yeah, it's, it goes back to what I said about we're not replacing Howard. We're hiring the new leader for the organization. And that leader, whoever that is, whether they're internal or external, is going to have the ability to craft the job in the way that they see fit. Um, and hey, uh, you know, it's stepping outside of my Pheasants Forever role, I see this across companies all the time. This is... This great resignation is also, you know, that we're all seeing is also the great retirement. There are a whole lot of company leaders who are saying, you know, I think I'm done and are passing off and creating a, a transition to the next generation of leadership. And it's a, it's a good thing. It's, it's like, it's the same way habitat develops, you know, it transitions over time and you have to cultivate it and you have to manage it. And that's, that's what it's all about. Where, um, you're, you're moving along in the process to replace him. Do you have great candidates that you like, or are you not looking at that yet? And are people still, if somebody, let's say Brandon over here is sick and tired of listening to me talk and he wants to run <laughs> for that position, is it still available? Absolutely. And the recruiting is happening over the summer. We have an outside consulting firm, a search consultant that, that manages the process. Their job, hey, this is one of the greatest jobs in the outdoors. I mean, the, the, this opening is going to be extremely attractive. We're going to have lots and lots of fantastic candidates from across the country. Um, I'm very confident of that. The process has to be managed carefully. And that's what we have an outside consultant to be able to help us with that. And there's a subcommittee of the board that is responsible for making sure that this process is run. Because, hey, if we have 100 candidates... 99 of them are going to be disappointed, mm-hmm. right? And that's okay because it's a great organization. And what we want to do is make sure that everybody is treated properly in the process. And that's, that's what we're doing. We're excited for the announcement when it comes. Uh, so am I. So <laughs> yes, am I. I'm sure Absolutely. You are. I'm sure. Brandon, go ahead. Put your resume in. I, you know, I, 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 <laughs> well, know, I know, I'll get you the email address later. <laughs> uh, what keeps you up at night in regards to Pheasants Forever? And when I say Pheasants Forever, I just generally mean Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. So if mm-hmm. I ever say that, it's the organization as a whole. Well, there are a couple things. Um, you know, uh, I, I think that we're, I, 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 I'm going to choose my words very carefully. The politicization, or how do I how do I know if I can say that word? The politics, yes. The politics of the outdoors bother me a little bit. Trying to trying to politicize what is something that should be a universal interest that keeps me up because I see 
I see progress being made when when some opposing some some previously opposing you know what I'm gonna let me step back and kind of say this a little better. Uh, what keeps me up at night is the potential for the outdoors to be politicized. It seems like the great progress that we're making right now are when historically opposing bedfellows got together and said, we got some common ground here. And the more we do that, the, the, the more we're going to have commitment to, to the outdoors and commitment to growing this organization. But when the outdoors is used as a weapon and as a, as a sort of a, 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 a you know, a, a, a spear for an ideology, nothing gets done. Um, you know, there's Democrat and Republican, there's, you know, urban and rural, there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's ag and there's environmental. And those things are, there are common interests here. And I really truly believe that we can make tremendous progress in climate change, in clean water, in clean air, in open spaces, when we try and reduce the amount of um, political ideology and just really focus on the common interests. Yeah, it, it can be uh, for the betterment of humanity or for the ground or the soil or the land or the habitat or well, the animals. And, and, and Matt, this is, a, this is a, how I can explain it. Um, for one of our TV shows, Minnesota Bound, it's mm -hmm. been on the air for 27, 28 years, something like that. And uh, whenever we get um, in, when we start working on something that we want people to understand about the land or water or some pollution or something like that, Ron Shira, he told me this years ago, he goes, I'm trying to get the Edina housewife to give a crap. Because if she cares, then we're going to get somewhere with it. And well, for people outside... Yeah. The Edina housewife might be hunting now. So yes, that's a good exactly. <laughs> so, But for people outside of Minnesota, that's right. kind of the the yuppity part of, you know, the, the high end. But if they don't understand that they're buying walleye from a restaurant and the restaurant purchased that walleye out of Lake Winnipeg, one of the most polluted lakes in the world because of phosphorus and, and other things that drain into that lake. Um, you know, they have no idea that that walleye came out of such waters, you know, and to help them understand just the big picture yeah. is something that's difficult well, to do. Well, and you know, I have a, I, I sort of have a point of view on this, you know, where, where, you know, you had mentioned something a little bit about, you know, the, I can't remember the exact words you use, but, but the, the sort of altruistic side of this. Okay. There's a convergence here. There's the altruistic side and there's the pure practical side. Okay. We've been talking about clean water and clean air since the early 1960s, right? Silent spring kind of stuff. Right. And, and, and there have been clean water and clean air advocates out there for a long time, banging the drum. And we've all been going, yeah, 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 yeah. But, but now clean water and clean air is sort of preventing us from being able to brew our beer, you know, wash our clothes, you know, produce the kinds of things we need to produce. The there's a practical side of this as well. And when that altruistic side meets the practical side, that's when stuff gets done. And that's what's happening right now. You're seeing, um, ag organizations, ag, you know, fantastic ag, ag companies, um, who are recognizing the, the value of, of maybe approaching production agriculture a little bit differently, meeting up with the environmental side and, and, and those common interests, that's where we're seeing some really, really amazing things happen. And I think that's what we have to focus on is finding those common intersection points. Cause that's, that's where real stuff gets done.
I asked you what- Wow, that feels like a long, long soliloquy. We're <laughs> getting know. deep here. Yeah, you know? We're getting deep. But, okay, so that's what keeps you up at night. Uh, what is Pheasants Forever doing, in your opinion? What are they doing well, and what could they do better? Um, well, what we're doing really, really well is, is hey, we are, we are doing more practical work for getting great habitat on the ground than- than just about any organization I know of. I mean, there's, in, we, we mentioned quail earlier. Some of the things that are happening in quail country, I mean, they don't happen if, if quail forever is not involved. Uh, and, and our farm bill biologists um, that are out there helping those landowners and helping those, those uh, state organizations get that habitat on the ground, we're doing a fantastic job there. And I don't know if you know this, but the organization, there's only one organization that has more wildlife biologists and pheasant forever. One organization in the country, you know who that is? U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Outside the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Pheasants Forever employs more biologists, wildlife biologists than any other organization. How That's, many you got? I knew you were going to ask me that. More than any other one except for... <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right? Um, so I think that that's, that's going really well. And... and, um, and, and also being a convener of some of these interests and getting these interests together. I think they're doing a really good job. What are we not doing a great job of? Well, you said it earlier. I, you know, when you have a single digit percentage of hunters who, who are members, that's room for growth. We can do more yeah. there and we, and we have to do more. I think that's a big part of it. Um, certainly, um, R3. I don't know if anybody's talked about R3 before. Um, oh, yeah. We, yeah. Yep. So, so, you know, R3, that's something that we have to continue to bang, bang the drum on. Ma making great progress in some areas, need to make some more progress in others. The Onyx Hunt app is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I use it on every hunt. Seriously, every hunt. Their app tells me everything I need to know about the lands that I want to hunt and the lands that we can all legally hunt on. The app also shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. It tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state land or federal lands or walk-in access properties. It's ideal for scouting before the hunt and during a hunt to help put together patterns. The app also has helpful features that show you the kind of crops that are in fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. And there's a timber cut layer to help you find the right forest habitat for rough grouse. If you hunt in North Dakota, there's even a layer that lets you know if a property has been posted electronically. These are just a few of the many tools Onyx apps give you. And these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage. From the palm of your hand, Onyx Maps always help you to know where you stand. I love my dog, and like you, I always want to make sure that she has what she needs to stay healthy year-round and perform at her best in the field. That's why I feed Daisy Nutrisource high-performance dog food. Nutrisource dog food comes with their good-for-life system that includes four key ingredients that work together to support gut health, heart health, and the overall well-being of our dogs. I have complete confidence that my dog has all of the nutrition to excel in the field and make it through a rigorous hunting season. I've seen it firsthand, and she loves her food. Take it from me and my dog, Daisy. Nutrisource high-performance dog food can help your dog reach their full potential. Find the food that's right for your dog at NutrisourcePetFoods.com.
If you're an outdoor lover on the go, then odds are good that you have toys and equipment that you want to haul. Aluma Trailers, well, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say that Aluma trailers tow like a dream. Their trailers are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. Can I tell you one thing that I've talked about over the last You're couple of years? Yeah, exactly. So Bob St. Pierre, I've brought this up to him so many times. You and Bob are such good buddies, mm-hmm. and I, I love Bob. And and he has reasons why this um, why this hasn't happened universally. But I've told Bob, I said, I think, and he's going to shake his head that I'm bringing it up again, but there's so many projects that Pheasants Forever has been a part of, habitat restoration projects, public land acquisitions that people don't associate with yeah. Pheasants Forever because- This is going to be the sign thing again, isn't it's it? It's the sign thing. The I, sign don't, thing. I know, Jesus, but if, no. okay, as a hunter, you talk about a small percentage of the hunters aren't members. If a hunter pulls up into that parking lot and he says, oh, I get to go hunt on this property because of work Pheasants Forever did. Yeah. Then that tells me they're doing stuff. I can see it. I can visually yep. see it. And a lot of times I believe that people don't sign up to become a member of something because they don't know where that dollar eventually yeah. goes. But if you see it in the ground and you get to put your name on that on that right. sign with the WMA for the state or whatever, then yeah. you can you can connect the dots. So this is a, I'm glad you brought this up because I heard you talk to Douglas about this as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's an, it's an interesting dilemma. It's a tough one. And, and, and the reason I know it firsthand is because I have a couple friends at the Minnesota DNR who I've talked to about this. Okay. Um, we're getting somewhere well, here, man. Well, I'm excited about this well, conversation. Well, it, it, we're getting somewhere, but we're not. Yeah. Um, it, what, and th- this is actually something that, that is a little bit, we can, we'll back this up into curiosity and understanding the whole kind of whole situation. So just long and short of it is yeah. it's amazingly complex to manage signs. Okay. <laughs> just talk to the DNR about even managing the, or the, the, either the local DNR or the federal, the feds about managing green and white signs on WPAs. Okay. And yellow signs on WMAs, the cost and time associated with managing those signs takes away from putting the actual habitat in the ground. And if no one is committed to maintaining those signs over the course of a few years, those signs start to look like crap. And, and then it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. And then they fall apart. And then what are you doing? You're donating million, or you're spending millions of dollars to, to manage signs that should be being put toward the habitat itself. Yeah. Now that said, yeah. that said, we can't stop there. I, I think there's solutions. I think the solutions are all digital. I mean, we're using Onyx, okay? Um, we're using other digital tools now. Now, probably more important, more than the signs. We might be entering that land not where the sign is, right? You pop up your digital tool, your digital map from that state, and you look at that. Well, there could eventually be a point where you might be able to see a little pop-up about this land. How long has it been a public piece of land? When was the last time it was burned? What if we could have the genealogy 
of that piece That's of cool. public land. Yeah. And, and look, I've not talked to anybody about this. You know, I'm sure Ron, Ron, Ron the chief conservation officer's rolling his eyes going, <laughs> shut up. But no, no, but I mean, we have data and analytics now sure. that allow us to maybe look at that piece of land, click on it and say, okay, this is 600 acres. Uh, it's been in public land since 19... 19- 95. Last time it was burned was 2007. Um, uh, where the land is, uh, uh, don't, came from a donation between Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, and blank. Why can't we do that rather than the signs? And, and that, to me, is where the future is. It's not putting a physical sign up. It's actually using the data on the electronic tools that we got. I, I like that idea. I mean, last year, so uh, Ben Bredigan works for Onyx. A buddy of fantastic mine. guy and fantastic yeah. organization. Yeah, totally. So when <laughs> North Dakota, sponsored. Yeah, when uh, yeah, they're partners with us too, mm-hmm. and we're grateful for that. And um, we use it. I use it on every hunt, and you do too. I mean, there's no oh, way yeah. I could go hunting without it. I don't know how people do go yeah. without it. But anyway, the North Dakota laws changed on trespass yeah. laws, yeah, and it went digital, where farmers, landowners, ranchers could post their line their land digitally. And so I was a buddy of ours that works for North Dakota. Um, I was like, Mike, you got to talk to Ben about this. Get that added to Onyx. And they did it real quick. Mm-hmm. And now if you go into North Dakota, you can see land digitally posted on the Onyx yep. app, just like you could see a plots property, um, a WMA. You can see all of that layers mm-hmm. on there, which is nice. But I think there's potential. It's like, I do too. Yeah. I really do. I think that that's, a, I think that's the solution versus putting up a sign that five years from now is going to be faded and is not going to be a great reflection on things. Fair enough, fair enough. I, I think what I keep getting at, though, is... St. Pierre's want, over there going, thank I, you, God. I know, Maybe he gets off of this trips. now. I know, but <laughs> my goal is your goal. Yeah, and that's oh, to totally. help, And that's to help people understand what in the world am I a part of if I'm a part of Pheasants Forever. And the value is there. The land that is being changed forever yeah, absolutely. is there. And I want to know that. And I want other people- I gotta people- tell you, I, I get jazzed when I see a sticker. I'm driving down the road and I see a sticker and it, maybe it's not a st- sticker even on what looks like a hunting vehicle. Do you give like a thumbs up? Do you wave? Uh, I wave. Uh, I, I wave. I sometimes wave. It's at a gas station. I walk up and I say, hey, just want to thank you for being a member because I know that that person's going to renew then. You know, I just I really believe that that's, uh, I, I mean, I think stickers are just as important as signs. Yeah. Well, yeah. and, and the, the walking over and shaking somebody's hand, you yeah. don't have to be the chair of Pheasants Forever well, to yeah. do that. You and, could be a member and say, Hey, thank you for being a member yeah, of Pheasants Yeah, I'm an Forever. introvert. So I look at their shoes when you I say are not. I'm totally an introvert. You are not. I'm what they call an expressive introvert. If I get on a topic that I really like, I get kind of, exp- I get kind of <laughs> out there, but Otherwise, I'd just rather kind of hang back. Okay, we're flying, and I have so much more I want to discuss. And this might be too far in the weeds for your role because you want to empower people to make these decisions. But when we you briefly touched on uh, the hunting community coming together, when you see things like potentially reversing the Pittman-Robertson Act, um, how does Pheasants Forever go to bat to support what I believe 99 out of 100 hunters would say don't you dare get rid of that. Yeah. That is a massive amount of money that goes to wildlife habitat conservation. And that is now, I, I, I to me, I, I laugh at it. think it's not possible that that could ever get overturned. Well, um, and, and for those who don't know what Pittman Robertson is, um, it's a voluntary, I'm going to emphasize voluntary tax that is that is put on on the supply side. So the, so the makers of guns and ammunition have this tax on, where every every single uh, bullet, every single gun, every single—I think it's even—it extends to bow uh, archery as well. Yeah. 
um, funds go to conservation as a result of that. And it was created in 1930s by these organizations because they saw the habitat, uh, the landscape going away and they realized that this was not a good thing. So PR, uh, Pittman-Robertson dollars, this is again one of those areas where let's not politicize this. Oh, people, oh, it's a tax, we don't need to tax. Wait a minute, this is a tax that the organizations who are being taxed like, okay? Um, it's incredibly important and it would be colossally stupid to get rid of it, colossally stupid. There, I just said it, yeah. okay? Um, I think that, uh, I think that at, at the end of the day, cooler heads will prevail. Um, but it is one of those, uh, I said earlier in our, our discussion, one of the areas of Pheasants Forever that's incredibly important, which is the advocacy side of things. We have a great team um, of government relations specialists who spend time with the movers and shakers to say, hey, you know, let's, let's quit with the rhetoric here. Let's talk about what's underneath this, and this is not a good idea. So I get a bunch of emails already. I have been, and I know the organizations have been too, but saying, is this happening? Is this real? What can we do? What, what would you tell somebody right now? Is it a, are we in a waiting period? Well, what that? I would, what I would say, first of all, I don't know much about where it's exactly at. Some people say it's, you know, smoke. Some people say, well, somebody raised it. So that's an issue. What I can tell you is the most important thing is become a member of an outdoor organization. They're yes. all going to yeah, go yeah, to bat yeah, for you. Absolutely. Whether yeah. it's, whether it's pheasants forever, quail forever, whether it's our friends at Backcountry, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, Rocky Mountain Elk, you name it join an organization, make sure that your, your name is on the list, make sure that you are a voice. Because, because saying you don't like it and doing nothing about it, you know, sorry. Where do we stand on the Call of the Uplands campaign? $500 million that you guys are raising to put 75,000 acres of wildlife habitat back into the ground. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's been a fantastic fantastic effort by a whole lot of people and it really is on track and it, you know the culmination of that campaign will be in the in uh, pheasant fest 2023 um it's it's been a, a really really good effort about raising funds for the long term uh, from a whole lot of different sources chapters doing it individuals uh, corporate partners long-term commitments you know i put a little bit in my life insurance policy it said you know what i'd like a little bit of the organization to or this organization to get a little bit from my life insurance policy Interesting. yeah a lot a lot of people looking at different ways they can leave something to the organization either today or something in the future and uh and that campaign we'd never done one like that before and it's been it's been going really really well and there's still time to get involved yeah, yeah. how much longer until we reach it are you, you, I think you said that well, we're going to celebrate it at... Yeah, we're on track. On we're track. on track. Okay. Overall, we're on track. There are some areas we're maybe a little bit behind. Other areas we're a little bit ahead, but we're really on track to be able to celebrate next year if we okay. keep we keep the pressure on, though. Yeah. What comes after this, then? This We're going to celebrate, and then there's going to... I know there's going to be the well, next thing. Well, there should you, be. You know, back, to be. To, back to the board and management team, um, you know, the, the management team creates a three- to five-year strategic plan looks out ahead what's what's on the horizon for the next three to five years so that campaign gets culminated that's part of our strategic plan we look ahead the next three to five years so it's always you know every organization every healthy organization is always kind of thinking ahead to the next few years and what's coming down the pipe and where can we go so i don't know the answer but i do know that there are mechanisms in place to be to look ahead and see what what, what the next hill is we're going to climb Another um, important topic was American Grasslands Conservation Act. Where does that stand? Um, uh, 
that would be great to have Bethany, <laughs> okay. Bethany Herb from 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 the government relations team talk talk to her about it. Uh, it's it, it's important. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it, it we get updates regularly um, from Bethany and the team. Uh, and what I could say is, um, read up on it, uh, understand it. Uh, and you know, sometimes we look at these things and we just go, oh yeah, you know, that's happening over in D.C. That's a bunch of you know, people with suits on, you know, talking in front of microphones, take a look. I mean, this is all about, this is more than just about creating hunting areas here. This is about, um, this is about protecting wide open spaces for a lot more than just a place to walk and find a bird. The Recovering America's Wildlife Act is another one that really is, if that um, passes, and I want to say it's in Congress, I might be wrong here, but um, I think there's a vote coming up in the next couple of weeks or the next month and a half, I believe. But that is going to be a huge, huge commitment to wildlife conservation. Not necessarily national parks, yep. places that you know visitors are gonna have, where they're gonna see impact there, but to wildlife habitat that will directly affect hunters. Yep. Places that you and I walk and everyone listening walks. So do you keep up with this stuff politically or things that are happening in, happening in Washington? Or do you really say we have a team and we keep them um, focused there and you just stay big picture? We keep up on, to, on it through the team. Yeah. You know, the team is responsible for watching day to day, giving us updates, and they do a great job of it. Um, and, and making sure that we understand the the broader implications of it and that we're there if needed. If we need to make a phone call to someone, if we need to participate in a meeting, if we need to, you know, be part of an action alert, we'll do that. But we leave it in the hands of management to be to who who really understand the ins and outs and nuances to make sure that it gets done right. What I can tell you is also becoming a member gives you that opportunity to stay informed on this kind of stuff. That the magazine and the, the magazines, if you haven't read them, well you read them. I know you read them because I've seen you in them. But Take the time to read them and not just read the part about, you know, you know, where to hunt, read the part about what's going on out there. Mm-hmm. It's a great place to get educated. The more, you know, the more, you know, yep. absolutely. Um, you're a volunteer. <laughs> I'm a volunteer. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. How many hours do you add up for the year that you spend volunteering in this position? <sighs> you know, it ebbs and flows a little bit. I'm probably maybe a hundred, 150 hours, 200 hours a year. That's a, that's a, I'll guess it's more in some months than it is in others, but it's, to me, it's not, um, it's not just about volunteering. It keeps me fresh too. I've got some things, some experiences that I can give. Um, but I also get a lot out of it and by getting a lot out of it, it's not getting a lot out of it from the standpoint, I get all sorts of awesome places to hunt. That's not it. What I get is I get to surround myself with like-minded conservation oriented outdoors people who teach me why I should be looking for rose hips on the side of this hill, you know, who teach me what the difference is between brome grass and blue stem and, and why it's so important to have this kind of habitat at these kinds of years. I mean, I'm, I'm a better hunter and a better outdoors person. I enjoy it more because I volunteered for this organization. Yeah. And there's so many levels of it. I always tell people you don't, like you mentioned earlier, don't ask me for money. Okay. But there's, you don't have to give money to be a vital part of any conservation organization. If you care about hunting, you care about the land, you care about wildlife, you care about all these things that we're talking about, 
You can give your time. Yeah, you can give, and, and, and you go through ways. a you go through a journey. You do. You can give your time first. Then maybe you give a little bit of money. But then you maybe introduce someone else. And you know, um, again, I I I don't I don't consider fundraising to be a big skill yet. Five years ago, Bob and I decided to put on a little clays for conservation. I was just, that was thing. my next question. Okay, clays so, yeah, for so conservation. Well, we, well, we, and this didn't come up as a money thing. What it was was, hey, you know what? We should get a, you got friends, I got friends. How about we get them together for a for, sporting clays shoot um, at the end of the summer? And you know what? Let's raise some money along the way. And our first year, we raised 10 grand in like an afternoon. And we went, hey, we're raising money. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. So since then, five years later, fast forward, we've raised like 50 grand. You'd ask me when I was a 23-year-old that I helped raise 50 grand. I'd have went, you're crazy, right? Right. So it kind of creeps up on you. But it does require you to start getting involved early. And then there's lots of different, there's lots of different connection points. I was that, The reason I wanted to bring that up, one, I'm coming to shoot. Yeah, I'm good, signed good. In. Yeah, we've got you know, Money's going to flaw out of my pocket again, right? <laughs> yeah. um, we, um, uh, what was I going to, oh, I was going to say, how does somebody go about, doing the clays for conservation model or going above and beyond saying, you know what we do have our, I'm a member at a local chapter, but the clays for conservation is a a prime example of another way to create something to do above and beyond. And can anybody do that? I know you guys, you and Bob St. Pierre are very well connected. So obviously you've got the resources available. If somebody says I can do my own sporting clay shoot and raise money for Pheasants forever. Yeah. How do I do it? You could. You could. Bob and I are we're in a bit of a special situation being yeah. tied to the national organization and the fact that I've got a lot of business connections. I think I think you could get really frustrated if you tried to just go off and do that on your own. I think your first step is to take the step of joining the local joining the organization and joining a local chapter and looking at what they're doing and finding out what kind of events are that that you could help with. There are youth days, there are habitat days, there are you know, clays for conservation events, there are pipe nights. That's probably the best way to start as opposed to trying to just create something out of thin air. It'd be just really hard to do that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you have your own property we talked about. You dabbled in it. We're, we're getting <laughs> I have three now. We're getting low on time. I know uh-huh. you've got a meeting you've got to make. So um, your uh, journey into taking land and making it a wildlife property putting habitat back on the ground. What have you learned from that? Uh, you know, it's been, um, it's been about six or seven years now that I've been doing this. And it, it's, I've, I've learned a lot more than just about habitat. So first of all, um, it started, I, I, again, one of the other mis- misconceptions is that because I've been involved in this organization that I have all these great private land honey holes that I go to because I know all sorts of people. I had a lot of public land. And, and, and I have the same public land that your listeners are, are, are hunting. But I, I did get very fortunate um, several years ago to be able to buy, first of all, my first piece was a, just a 40-acre piece, a postage stamp of brome grass out in western Minnesota, a piece that we had been hunting for a while with permission that became for sale, and I, for whatever reason, was able to, to buy it. It was terrible pheasant land, terrible. Why? It was just Why? It was straight-up brome grass you know, it was a, it was a green desert and you'd walk through it and it was very pretty. And there wasn't a single, a single bug, a single bird or anything. And it was fine for deer. Deer were moving through it, bordered, uh, um, a hot Creek out there in, in Western Minnesota, but it was brome. I said, I'm going to make a little habitat project out of this. 
And I got some advice from the Pheasants Forever um, staffer who came out and looked at it. He said, you're going to have to burn it. You're going to have to um, plow it under. You're going to have to spray it, kill off all this brome grass, and you're going to have to reseed it. And, and I watched what happened to that land when we did all that. And it was amazing, absolutely amazing. The second year, the year after we, we basically took it down to the ground, year after that, I walk through it and I've got bugs popping up everywhere. I've got frogs. I've got skinks. Those little skinks yeah. had never seen those before. I've got skinks in there. I've got pheasants. I've got, you know, a fawn hops up. I, I, I mean, it was just such a complete transformation in one year that I said, I get it. I totally get just it. Just one year. Just one year. I kind of thought that it, it takes take- about three to get, it takes about three to get complete, but just in that first year, the difference and then the second year and then the third year and then we burned it again this is last year and now I'm watching what's coming up and it's like and I think about what it was I thought it was decent now I look at it and go this is this is something before you put the effort into it can you guesstimate how many pheasants lived on that property and now how many there are yeah I would guess zero Seriously? Yeah, it was. If there was one in there, it was passing through. I mean, if you find a pheasant in brown grass, they're passing through or they're hiding. They got kicked out of somewhere else because otherwise, they, why were they there? Yeah. Right. Now, uh, this last season, I sat in the deer stand and I have four roosters arguing under my tree stand <laughs> for an hour, and I'm watching them going, "Nice." Yeah. Yeah. Four four roosters just under my stand. Yeah. And and and. You know, this year again, cackles everywhere while I was working on putting tree stands up. Really great. So that was the first one. Well, then I had a good friend who I met through a Pheasants Forever connection. There was another piece that became available down in southern Minnesota, uh, southwest Minnesota, and I bought that um, and was fortunate enough to get that. Well, we just burned that. Now that piece is available. And then just four days ago, I closed on the third piece. Congratulations. About five, five minutes from the first postage stamp one. And that one is a mess. But it's going to be awesome. But it's a mess right now. Because, Why is it a mess? Because because it was a it was a a piece of land that was registered as a walk in, but the people who owned it lived lived far away, and they just didn't have the means to maintain it. Um, it's in Rim, um, uh, reinvest in Minnesota. Um, but all cottonwoods and um, you know all invasives have popped up: cottonwoods, cedars, um, brome grass, and. Um, I got a farmer neighbor out there who wants to go to town on it. We're going to be clearing the whole thing. We're going to be doing the work on it. And again, it's all about, you know, these kinds of pieces of land, which you don't realize if you're not into it is they require maintenance. They require, you know, there's, there's some good pieces out there in public land and bad because of that maintenance. The maintenance so, yep. Yeah. So, I mean, certainly I'm learning a lot about habitat knowing that you got to have winter cover, you got to have nesting cover, you got to have brood cover, you got to have food, right? And it's not just about planting a food plot and then walking that every time. So it's, you learn about that. But oddly enough, I also learned about diversity in the outdoors because that brome grass field, you know, it looked really pretty, but all it was was grass, one kind of grass. Now I look at the diversity out there and that diversity took some work. I look at that and it's a much, much better piece of land because of that. I think that's a good way of looking at the hunting world in general. You could oh, yeah. say if we diversify, if we add women, minorities, continue adding it to the voice mm-hmm. of conservation, not just Pheasants Forever, Quill Forever, but over yep. across everything in this country, we're going to become 
a stronger unit and yeah. we're going to have, you're going to see the re, the fruits of all of that. Yeah. And, and you know, what's important with that, Travis, Travis, is you have to make room. Okay. If you just plow a field and leave it completely dirt and you say, step back and say, grow up, you know what you're going to get? Cottonwoods and brome grass. You're going to get a monoculture. Probably some thistles. Probably some, probably some thistles. <laughs> yeah. It's going to grow What's going to grow up there are the things that are actually most equipped to thrive in that environment. But that's not necessarily the best for that piece of land. So what do you do? Yeah, you let some of that grow up. But then you might like burn a little bit or you might seed a little bit or you might cut a few trees down or you might do some things to make room for that diversity. And that's the same in the outdoors when we're talking about fostering diversity. It's not just about saying, yeah, everybody come on board. It's not that easy. We've got to create some room here. And that's not, that's not to our detriment. That's to our benefit. And then and that's, that's, you know, I've talked to some PF staffers about it and it's actually done. It's actually been helpful for them understanding about diversity of people in the outdoors as well. Yeah. And I think we can't, you know, this conversation that we started today began talking about one-on-one -on -one time in the field. Yeah. And we can't overemphasize just the importance of that mentorship role. Well, yeah, yeah. So you take that, so creating room, or, or yeah, think about, and I know we're, boy, where, well, look at that. Look at <laughs> I know, you gotta but go, this is, you gotta This is kind of, this is probably something that's been an epiphany over the past maybe 18 months with regard to mentoring in the outdoors. Um and, you know, because I am doing more mentoring now, and that's probably, I'm at that 54, uh, look, uh, I'm the 54-year-old white guy in the outdoors, right? There's a whole lot of me, right? And that's okay. I'm probably at that crossover point where I'm more interested now in other people's experiences than I'm in my own, which is, which is cool. That's kind of the natural crossover. But I've mentored women, I've mentored minorities, I've mentored kids down the outdoors. And, and what's, if you think about it, you don't take them in the outdoors and say, now do what I do. Okay, that's not going to work. All right, I've got a good friend, Julia, who has been, uh, who has been an adult onset hunter, and she's a great hunter now, but she had never been deer hunting, so I took her deer hunting for the first time last year. I don't just, like, look, when I go deer hunting, I take an empty bottle, right? Because when I got to go, I'm going to take a pee in the bottle, right? I can't say to Julia, hey, here's a bottle. You know, if you've got to go, go. Instead, I have to go, okay, wait a minute. If she needs to, to, you know, go, if she needs to go, I need to show her, Hey, you know what, walk over here downwind to this spot. You can go here and it won't mess up your hunt. I have to let her know that that's what needs to be done. I can't say do what I do. Um, if I'm with a new minority hunter and we're both carrying guns on public land and I say, go talk to those two hunters over there and see where they're hunting and make sure that you got a spot to go. That's a totally different thing. And if I go and do that, I can't say, go do what I do. We have to make room and make it a good experience for them. And that means we might have to adjust our style a little bit. And the thing is, you and I talked about this off, off, uh, off recording a little bit. We do it every day if we're really good parents. And I, I know you do it. I watch you do it. I see your posts. When we're taking a kid out in the field, we're not going to take that brand new kid out in the, in the thickest cattail slough. We're not going to take them looking for muskies on the first trip. We're going to take them looking for sunnies. Uh, we're not going to make sure it's the coldest day of the year. We're going to make sure that they're comfortable. We accommodate kids when they're bringing them in the field to make sure they have a great experience. When we're mentoring adult hunters who are coming from diverse backgrounds, we just need to do the same thing. We have this muscle in us. We just got to be mindful of it.
Yeah, bring wow, it, bring long, it long soliloquy there, but I feel pretty <laughs> passionate about it because I've yeah. seen a half a dozen times over the past, you know, eighteen months where where that's manifested itself, and I've seen myself also not do it, and what's happened and and, and seen when people haven't had a great experience because I forgot um, to, to 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 make sure that they were having a good experience. Yeah, um, it, it's all of those points. I mean, yes to every single one of them. Uh, one thing that I would add to that is that bringing people along to experience kind of what's going on in your mind, the planning, why are we going to do stuff? Talk about it. You know, talk about this is why I'm doing certain yeah, things. Yeah. My brother-in-law is from South Africa, and I took him deer hunting with because his, his son, my nephew, is obsessed with hunting and fishing. So he wants to come with my, my kids all the time, and I take as much as possible. He goes, I've never hunted a day in my life. I need to understand all this stuff. So will you bring me with? So he's sitting in the deer vine, you know, and we've talked, we've had conversations now, family dinners, and he's talking about, okay, Kingston's now old enough to yeah. deer hunt this year during the youth season. And he's coming and, and his, he, he goes, I really want to be there to see it, to be a part of it. I want to take my hunter safety, you know, and, but he didn't understand the way I talked to him about things. So we had to like work through that to understand. He goes, right? I feel like, I'm a newborn, you know, like I'm being talked down to. And I was like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I guess I'm just, this is just such a world that I live yeah. in. I had to understand his perspective. I think you it. as a guide probably have that muscle a little bit more developed than others because you have to, exp you've had to explain to people along the way. Uh, I, I have to remind myself all the time. We had this, Bob and I had this discussion last year. We invited a new person out with us, a Sharpie hunting. Mm -hmm. And we said, hey, you want to go Sharpie hunting with us? And, you know, at, at you know, early September, and then we kind of like, Bob and I talk in code now because we've been hunting together for so long. We forgot to actually like talk through the whole program with this person. They didn't realize they were going until a week <laughs> beforehand. It was like, hey, you, got, you know, here's what you, you know, here's where we're leaving. Oh, I didn't realize I was even going. I was like, oh crap, we forgot that we, we were. There's, there's a lot that goes into it. Yeah. And, and including, yeah. including people on the journey is fun and yeah. they learn a lot. And I feel like. And you learn a lot when you're heck articulating yeah. it heck too. Yeah, absolutely. Also, I think the last thing I would add to it is that, you know, we, we have this in our mind and I've talked about it on several episodes over the last couple of years. We have this in our mind that we do want it to be a perfect experience for people, but sometimes that perfect experience can result in us not bringing somebody out there. True. I don't want to miss an opportunity to bring somebody along. So even if it's land that I don't think holds a lot of birds yep. or might be not ideal conditions, maybe it's just a shorter outing, yeah. but still bringing them along because we don't know what might trigger inside of them. Brandon, you can speak to this. Yeah, we manage drug, expectations. Yeah, we drug you through water and you saw birds and you didn't come close to bagging a pheasant. Not even close. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, my he's, willing, he's willing to yeah, come Yeah, I'm willing up. to go back. It was a good experience and then the, it was fun with the people that brought me to. Like, I just had a good overall time and I learned a whole lot yeah. from being with people with experience too. Yeah, well, you do, uh, you're right, managing expectations and then as, you, as we talked about, you know, you do become a better outdoors person yourself when you have to explain it. When someone says, well, why did we walk this way? And you say, well, because the way the wind is going, we got to work the dogs. Reminds you, oh yeah, that's, you know, you kind of remember those kinds of things because every once in a while we've stepped out of the truck and walked the wrong way. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. Matt, appreciate you taking the time today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And th again, thank you for all you guys do for the outdoors too. It's a, you guys have been great partnership and great advocates for, for, for getting people out there. Well, we're honored to be able to work with you guys on, on everything. And just a reminder, the flush is airing the TV side right now. A new season is airing right now on the outdoor channel. If you tune in this week, which would be the week of July 11th, 12th, uh, whatever we're at here, um, 
the hunt that I took in Colorado is one of the most challenging adventures I've ever been on, but also one of the most rewarding. We, we hunted for ptarmigan at 14,000 feet above sea level. And it, I watched that. I watched you, I watched you document that. And I was like, Oh man, that's yeah. not for me, man. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I mean, more power to you, man. Yeah. But anyway, uh, we're, we're excited to be able to bring you those adventures. We hope you enjoy them. Continue to send us your feedback, your questions. If you have guests for this podcast, We'd love to have them on the show. So um, I've got a list of viewer questions that I'm going to get to maybe next week or the week after. Um, either way, keep them coming. And before we know it, we're going to be back out in the field. So I hope you're taking the time with your dogs and, and keeping them in shape because soon we'll be hunting again. I'm Travis Frank reminding you to take the time to introduce someone new to the field. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Flush Podcast. Flush Podcast.